CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Josh Marshall, and this is the Josh Marshall Podcast with Kate Riga. Today, we're going to talk about the presidential campaign. Uh, for now, the sort of cosplay Republican primary for the presidential nominee, which as we know is not real, but it's still, you know, fantasy football isn't real, but you still, a lot of people are still play it and they get enjoyment out of it. So who are, who are we to judge? And we're also going to talk about some uh, Supreme Court oral arguments that Kate just uh, just listened to. And that is, we'll get to that in a moment, but that is another one of these cases where the specific thing is something quite technical and, and you know, not something that in the abstract, you might think there was a kind of an obvious open and shut uh answer to, yet it is part of this larger assault on the quote-unquote administrative state. Uh, The effort by the Republican Party and conservatives to sort of slowly dismantle the modern American state as it came into existence, partly in the New Deal, partly in in another set of another major era of reforms about 110, 120 years ago. So we'll talk about that and then we'll finish it up with uh, some George Santos and Hunter Biden talk. But um, the first thing we want to get into, you may have seen this, that as, 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 as we said, we know that, that, as I said, we know that Donald Trump is going to be the Republican nominee for president in 2024. But for a year now, we have had this, it's very hard to know what to call it. It is a primary campaign in which, A, we know who's going to win. A few people didn't know who was going to win at the beginning. And I still want credit because you maybe you did too, but I knew it from the very beginning. But there was that period, a lot of people knew it, to be fair, uh, and have some humility. But there were there was a period when when a serious amount of people thought like, "Wow, DeSantis, he's the guy. He did it in Florida. Now he's going to take it national." We know what happened to that. So we know who the winner is going to be. But then there's this additional aspect of it, which is that everybody in the race, besides Donald Trump, Donald Trump is their best friend. They love Donald Trump. And they are so impressed with all the great things that he did in his first term as president and any criticism about anything tied to the time he tried to overthrow the Republic or had his pals storm the U.S. Capitol. Like, let's don't be don't be don't be a jerk like that. Don't be insulting the great man, Donald Trump. So that's a little different. 
from what we're from what we're used to. You know, you don't see uh, Dean Phillips, the future former uh, representative from Minnesota, out there saying Joe Biden's awesome. You don't run against somebody and say they're awesome. You don't have to say that they're a degenerate drunk. If they're that awesome, you wouldn't be running against them. But now, after, you know, the sort of the crumpled carcass of Ron DeSantis is somewhere by the side of the road with his arm bent back over his head or something. And we had that, we had that brief period where Tim Scott was kind of the guy. He never became the guy. There was Glenn Youngkin, who was maybe going to be the guy if he was able to um, take complete control of the Virginia state legislature. But now, to expand our metaphor, Nikki Haley's the guy. And yesterday, something happened where she really officially became the guy, which is that the Koch network endorsed her. And it's another of these weird things, weird features of the Citizens United era that this thing, the Koch network, exists. It's not just like a super PAC or like Club for Growth. We've always had a few, you know, these kind of, um, well, even Club for Growth is sort of a, a development in some ways of the of the Citizens United era. But we've always had, gr- you know, organizations, groups that kind of endorse someone on Democratic side. It's Emily's List or, uh, you know, this or that union group or whatever. But the Koch network is really like an, it, almost like an institutional political party in as much as the amount of money it commands, not just money, but the, um, the amount of, you know, ground game. It used to be like, what is a political party? Well, it's a mechanism to raise money. It has all of this institutional power to mobilize people, to get people knocking doors. The Coke network is kind of all those things. And now it says it's going to be putting putting that muscle behind Nikki Haley, the guy, right? So, Kate, what do you what do you make of that? What do you make of this? Does this does it matter? Is it just more kind of nonsense in this fake campaign? Okay, so I think that in the most generous read of this, you would give, you know, the the Coke network the benefit of saying, okay, maybe they don't like Trump's kind of willingness to go full fascism, right? Like maybe they prefer the kind of forever minoritarian rule stuff, like the the lower grade authoritarianism type measures that that help Republicans. Kinder, gentler authoritarianism. Exactly. Your softer authoritarianism that like keeps Republicans in power despite the fact that they, you know, that they command such a smaller base population wise, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, even if that's true, then your next move is to, as you say, have this like fantasy football politics thing where you decide you're going to throw your support to Nikki Haley, someone who, barring Trump's death, honestly, has no possible shot of being the president, rather than putting your efforts behind the person who does have a chance of you know, of of turning back the threat of kind of preserving the democracy. And look, I understand, like, I'm not 
one of those people who gets mad at like Mitt Romney and Liz Cheney for being conservatives, even if they don't like Trump. Like, I don't think that being anti-Trump means that you have to adopt a liberal ideology. And I understand that for an entity like the Koch brothers to support a Democrat would fly in the face of the kind of traditional conservative principles that they are most concerned with, e.g. eroding the regulatory state, you know, having low taxes, kind of all the old school Republican corporate interest type priorities that they have. And would Biden's presidency serve those interests? Of course it wouldn't, right? But in this most generous reading, they are not backing Trump because they fear him or because they think he's a threat. And in the most generous reading, that's because of the threats to democracy and not the fact that he's like too erratic to kind of reliably carry the water for the corporate interests that they are most interested in serving. So from that lens, it's kind of like, great, you know, you picked a generic Republican who would probably in some alternate dimension, like serve your plutocratic needs, you know, I mean, good messaging job, I guess. In reality, these people have resources and money at their disposal. And at least on the margins, and these races tend to be marginal affairs, like could probably affect this race in a real way. And I I don't think it's nothing that they're not getting behind Trump, right? Like this election is going to, to some degree, come down to people who either previously did or do identify as Republicans who don't like Trump. Like those people are a big part of what's going to swing the election. Um, But it's so like wishy-washy. I mean, it's so weak. It's it's so small of anything. You know, it's kind of like the people who say they won't vote for Trump, but they'll write in Ronald Reagan. It's like, well, cool. Great. Thanks. Like, thanks for your work to to try to preserve the democracy. Yeah, I I'm of sort of 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 two minds about what they're doing, and and I maybe three minds, and part of the three minds is that I don't think we know yet what they're doing. Right? There's one there's one way of interpreting this that is they are a uh, you know they're not a pressure group exactly, but they're an organization within Republican politics, and they're not going to not endorse anybody. That doesn't make sense. So maybe this is just saying. You know, okay, we're we endorse Nikki Haley because it would just be absurd for us not to endorse anybody as in as if we're, you know, apolitical or something like that. Like, I don't know, the nature conservancy. Yeah, we're not going to endorse someone this year. You're 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 the Coke network. You're you're a Republican political thing. Of course you're gonna endorse someone. So they kind of nominally endorse her and send a little money her way, and that's it. Okay. That's one version. Another version is maybe they're really going to get behind her and, and, you know, mobilize their money and their infrastructure behind her. And that, that's a big deal that, that, you know, that gives her, that makes her campaign pretty formidable, at least in a, in a, you know, functional mechanics sense, in the sense that like in Iowa and here, there, you know, you're going to have people, uh, working the, the, you know, going door to door and phones and and giving her money to go on TV or, you know, or all the ways it operates under Citizens United. And if that's the case, you still come back to she's not going to win. Right. I mean, she's she's not going to win. So what are we really talking about here? And and you can't emphasize that enough. She's not going to win. So that really 
if if she's not going to win and they really are going to kind of make a go of it, then you start having to think like, are they kind of endorsing Joe Biden here? Because this isn't going to help Donald Trump. And he's definitely the nominee. I'm not saying it's going to like kill Donald Trump, but it's not going to help him. It's definitely not going to help him. And I think there are ways that it actually could hurt Trump in those small incremental ways that can make a significant difference in what we all know is going to be a close election. The other thing that I think it means, and this is what for me uh, resolves that contradiction, like what are they doing since they know she's not going to win? I think what they're doing is they don't think Donald Trump's going to win the election. They think he's going to lose. And why do they think that? They think that, I think, for an inverse of the reasons why you know, Biden optimists tell you Biden's actually in decent shape. It looks really bad, but there are X, Y, and Z reasons why he is still in the, in the stronger position. So if you think he's going to lose, then it starts to make sense like you think he sucks. He's bad. He is bad because even, even us plutocrats don't like full fascism. You know, we want we want to get rid of the administrative state and we want to we want to keep everything gerrymandered, but we don't want Trump jailing the heads of TV networks and all this kind of crazy shit he talks about. And the other thing is he's he has created a Republican party that isn't even that consistent on their policy goals. You know, his kind of populist anti-trade stuff the big corporate types who are kind of big in the Coke world, they don't like that. That's not good. And if you think those things and you think he's going to lose, you start thinking, let's try to let's try to start building up a new Republican Party for, for when he goes down in flames. Because if he loses this time, I mean, who knows? I mean, I don't know if is he going to be running in for the fourth time in, in 2028 when he's what, 85, uh, maybe. Who, you know, who, who, who are we kidding? Who can we count out? But probably not. I have to imagine, I, again, who am I kidding? But I think all things being equal, at that point, you have a lot of Republicans saying, you lost twice and your first term was kind of a disaster for us in electoral terms. So maybe, maybe we're done. So that's kind of, that's kind of how it makes sense if they're really going to make a go of it. Let's kind of drill down on your second point, because we both said something to this effect, which is if they go for Haley, really go for Haley, that could have some marginal electoral effect. So let's just kind of game that out, because the case for Haley, as much as one exists, has been, well, when all the other also rands drop out, whoever's sitting in second will consolidate that support which I think is factually inaccurate because we have some polling that tells us a lot of people's second choice is Trump. Like a lot of big Ron heads, you know, will throw their support to Trump. So I don't even think we can say with any kind of surety that if it is just Trump and Haley, that Trump will not have pulled farther ahead of her than he is now. And he is now like 50 points ahead of her, you know, varying degrees in the in the in the early states. But like, that's the average, right? He's like yeah, 50 points yeah. ahead. It was actually surprising to me when I when I I looked up the latest poll numbers after this news came out on Monday, I think I'm pretty sure it was Monday. And 
I was a little surprised that he, there was that period when Trump at 50, Trump at 48, Trump at 55, which by, by any normal standard, more than enough to, you know, to kind of clean the whole thing up and, you know, DeSantis at 20 and all this kind of stuff. But now he's like at 60 or sometimes higher. Sometimes he's in the high 60s. So it's like, and you're right. It's not like, and I think we've always known this. It's not like there is a sort of a hard 35% core, let alone 40% core of kind of like never Trump, never doing it. As you said, kind of like, yeah, DeSantis is my guy. And if he doesn't, yeah, Trump's not bad. Right. Um, so that that exists. So I, I, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, and, and Haley has, is, is so the flavor of the month right oh, now yeah. for the sort of the pundit class. But if you look at her numbers, she's kind of just approaching DeSantis for second. She's still like in the, at best in the high single digits. And a lot of her approaching DeSantis is that someone dropped him out of a plane and she's like, and he's, you know, <laughs> he's falling, he's falling through the air and he may hit her on the way down. So yeah, it's, that is possible. It's not like she's going to go up to like 40% and it's at 60, 40. But, but if you have someone who is making an argument against Trump from within the Republican Party, that can be damaging. Again, doesn't mean it's his party. Doesn't mean he's going to lose. But we're, this is a game of inches for the general election. So these things right. can matter. And the other thing that a shit ton of money does for you is you can stay in the race for a long time. So if they like build up her war chest, I mean, she could fight till the convention, even if she's got like five delegates to her name, right? Like it does, I think the rosiest argument for a Coke-backed Nikki Haley is that you have a Trump alternative on the stage for the entire primary. You, mm -hmm. As much as you can, you delay the consolidation of Trump support, caveated with the fact it's already pretty freaking consolidated, <laughs> right. but you delay that as long as possible. You keep the story about Trump v. Haley, even if it's a David v. Goliath thing. That's the story until the convention, which means you give Biden more runway to kind of figure his stuff out, to uh, to articulate his argument, um, try to, you know, stem some of the bleeding on the age thing. Um, you know, and it, more and even more than that, he just he doesn't have to fight until the end. He, he emerges bruiseless. Um, so you, you've got that, even though that, too, almost rests on a like, she has, I mean, her entire career, she's a political chameleon, right? Like that's how she survives. She's against taking down the Confederate flag until she's for it with caveats. And then when that becomes kind of the right stance to have taken, it's a big, like courageous, seminal story in, in her political development. Like she was against Trump in 2016 until she endorsed him and then and worked, worked in his him. administration. But as an independent, right? Like, but distanced herself from him at, at January 6th. She's like, he's done until she's like, well, okay, I guess he's back. So I guess I'm like kind of okay with him. And now she's having the same struggles they all have, which are, you know, how to run against him without alienating his fans. Like she is in that same spot. She's doing the, I have spent my whole life fighting for unborn babies, um, but I have great empathy for those baby killers, right? Like that's that's just who she is. Um, so I As think a woman, I can't have you saying that about baby killers because I am I am I am exactly. also a woman. 
basically is her stance. Yeah. So it is kind of interesting, this idea of having her be on the stage in perpetuity, you know, up until the convention, because if it was someone else in that position, if it was the Chris Christie that was promised to us that never really developed, but that was promised, that's a bit compelling, I think. But it's it's funny because if it was just Haley and Trump, does she get backed into a corner where she has to start throwing some punches because otherwise it's just like, what? Why are you I, there? You know, I, I think I think she will. And I do wonder, well, who knows what the what the Coke people are, are, are thinking. But and you mentioned like, you know, on stage, if everybody else is out, it'll just be her on stage because we know Trump isn't going to be there. Right. Mm-hmm. So and, and, and there I do think there, which which on, on, on one hand sort of deflates the whole idea of like, you know, she's going to she's going to bruise up Trump before Trump has to f- face Biden because we know Trump isn't going to show up. And to the extent that he has like 70 percent support among Republicans, why should he show up? But I do think there is some dynamic there of she's going to be able to say, I guess you can't face the other female candidate running for this nomination. What happened to you, Donald Trump? You can't you you can't face a real woman. You know, there's all sorts of kind of stuff that once it's just her and, you know, but again, it it, it completely comes down to is she going to is, is she going to make that argument? And at, and at the point at which it's just her and him, kind of how can she not? I, I, I well, one more thing I'll say about her is that you know, she I, I can't remember if she if she stepped down in the middle of her second term as governor to go work for Trump. I'm not sure she completed her second term. Um, but in any case, you know, she's the Republican governor of South Carolina. That's not a super competitive position. Right. I mean, she did get the nomination. That's that's significant. But it's like being the Democratic governor of, of Massachusetts. I mean, it's a pretty it's a pretty easy swim once you're you know, once you're in office, it's an overwhelmingly Republican state. So it's not as as many of her detractors would say, it's not clear she's a very good politician. Like what what has she done? Like Chris Christie, he can say, I was governor of a very democratic state, and so I rock. And there's a there's a decent argument there, um, and other you know other Ron DeSantis, while he was still among the living, could say I found Florida a swing state, and I made it into a red state, and I won re-election by sixty percent of the vote. I mean, one thing that I think a lot of us learned after you kind of scratch the paint a bit on that on that story is that the Democrats hardly even contested the race. He outspent them like 10 to 1. So, but still those are those are arguments. But is Nikki Haley a good good politician? We we don't really know because all she's really done is be the governor of a super conservative, you know, Republican governor of a super conservative state. But, you know, why I have to imagine she will become more antagonistic from him, toward him and if my if my basic theory of why they're doing this at all is right, you know, we mentioned a couple episodes ago that for all the stuff that is making Democrats cl- cry themselves to sleep, if you look at all the players in our politics right now, very few of them are acting like they think Donald Trump is going to be the president in 13 months, especially the Republicans. So 
and if 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 that's the case she may be some of the vehicle to to you know for people to kind of get that off their chests sort of for republicans to get that off their chests there's one other thing about her which i think is not huge but not nothing which is that if she does kind of stay in with him the whole time i think she is going to attract some you know quote unquote like elite support um and that's important because reporters pay attention to who the important people, uh, you know, care about and are talking about. Like, it'll keep her getting written about a bit more. Um, it'll keep her on TV a bit more. It'll give her just some, like, legitimacy, even if the numerical realities are Trump has 70% and she's got 20%. Um, so, you know, that's a, that's another piece, even though we also are not really anymore in the world where quote unquote, establishment Republicans, by and large, shy away from Trump. You know, like if you surveyed all the Republicans in Congress right now, probably, you know, 85, 90 percent would would come out and say they endorse Trump right now. But there will be a little peel off and a little bit from the people, you know, who, who like hate Trump by this point. You know, you can imagine like a, a Mitch McConnell or something um, right, right, getting on right. the Haley train. But there's also, as as we know, there there are he is almost sui generis as a Republican who has said pretty consistently, like I'm done with him. Yeah, I mean, we'll, we're going to see in a moment how done with him he is, but has said he's done with him and doesn't. You don't see Mitch McConnell doing a lot of stuff where suddenly you see he's going on Fox saying, "God, I love Donald Trump," out of the blue, and you're like, "Mitch, what happened?" and a rare Republican who's done that and hasn't retired, mm-hmm. right? Yet. Um, but I agree with you that, and I don't know, the Coke thing is not, is, is, is not nothing. So we'll, yeah. we'll see. We'll keep an eye. Yeah. Um, okay. So let's, uh, I mean, there's a kind of a segue from the Koch brothers to the war on the administrative state. Right. Um, this, is, this is their deal. This is their bread right. and butter. Yeah. And so tell us what, butter, you, what you heard today. Yeah. So there were oral arguments this morning um, in this case, which the fundamental question is, can the SEC adjudicate certain cases and their kind of in-house tribunals um, versus federal courts and not violate the person being regulated's Seventh Amendment right to a jury trial. So that was the question. Basically, the SEC, ever since the Dodd-Frank Act in 2010, has been given by Congress the right to pick. Like they can either adjudicate this in federal district courts or in these little, you know, in-house tribunals where they have these like specialist judges and, um, you know, and there's there are good faith arguments kind of against the in-house stuff. Like some, it makes people... Now, is that new under Dodds-Franks, like going back a dozen years? Is it, yeah. or is it just expanded? So it's a new thing going back a decade, basically. Before that, all the cases would have gone to district court. And now they Got have it. these kind of in-house ones, which, you know, the the squeamishness about them, right, is that then you have an agency that kind of gets to be judge, jury, and executioner. Like, it's all, you know, it's all agency people who are kind of in charge of it. And then the arguments in support are that a lot of these regulatory cases are super technical, right? So you kind of want a judge who knows what you're talking about, who isn't just a a generalist kind of federal judge who they come from all kinds of backgrounds, right? They might not know anything about securities markets. Um, You have consistency over the cases because it's not just spat out to a random judge. Um, And then you also, by this point, 
have spared the federal judiciary a tranche of these cases. And that's the kind of the key part is that this goes beyond the SEC, because a lot of agencies have these kind of internal adjudication systems to some degree um, where they can, you know, impose penalties or other kind of restrictions like that um, kind of in-house. So that was the crux of the argument. It really did become a vehicle for this kind of right-wing agency hostility, which we've seen over and over with all these different kinds of agencies. Well, the agencies that they don't like. But this one is kind of funny because you had a lot of this framing of the big bad SEC kind of trampling on the rights of the common man. And it's like, that's a hard, it's a hard agency to make that case with because they're not regulating the common man. You know, they're, they're regulating the common equities and securities uh, broker. Exactly. And, you know, the SEC was established after the 29 stock market crash and has been periodically strengthened kind of after periods of economic catastrophe at the hands of you know the malpractice of financial institutions. So the SEC is really one of those cases of regulation set up because it was pretty clear that without this regulation, these entities are not going to behave themselves. Now, isn't, isn't there, in addition to that it's kind of an in-house trial at the SEC, that the standard, standards of evidence and standards of how a trial is conducted are also different, right? That's right. Okay, so things about probably, you know, hearsay and who discovery. So it's not, it's not just personnel. It's you're, you're, you're having your case adjudicated under a different set of rules that is, that is, I would assume less expansive as than it is in federal court. Right. Which in some cases that might kind of benefit the person being regulated because one of these forums or the other might have you know, different remedies, maybe remedies you consider less painful to, uh, right. you know, address the um, the malpractice if you're found guilty of it. Um, so, but it was just interesting today because you had had, like, John Roberts kind of starts out saying that a lot of the government's case rests on this um, 50-year-old decision. And he, he was going on about how, you know, things have changed in the past 50 years. Agencies are mighty strong these days. Like, the American people have much more to fear from them now than they did 50 years ago. And then, like, 20 minutes later, you have Elena Kagan go... So something I've been thinking about, you know, agencies are stronger than they were 50 years ago, but our co- our problems are much more complicated than they were then. And generally, we leave it to Congress to decide how to solve those problems, whether agency adjudication is a proper venue, you know, versus we, the court, trying to make what is the, the argument against defanging the regulatory state, right? Which is that that power doesn't dissipate into thin air. It's all shifted to the judiciary, which leaves judges kind of with huge powers to decide how neutered agencies should be. Uh, Obviously, a distinct threat amid our very kind of right-wing judiciary right now. And then Neil Gorsuch comes in 20 minutes later and goes, you know, no one's saying that Congress doesn't have a lot on its plate. Uh, But that doesn't make our constitutional restraints evaporate now, does it? Which is like particularly funny given that Gorsuch's mom was, you know, the the EPA administrator who bragged about slashing the budget by a quarter and, you know, inches she managed to kind of hew out of the the, the different regulation books and everything like that. Um, so, you know, that's what it was today. It was just kind of another entry in these that it sounds so wonky and boring. It's like SEC adjudication, like who cares unless you're like playing in the equities market. But, Mm -hmm. you know, it's just this is 
the Roberts court is going to be known for abortion, right? That's what it's going to go down in history as. But the hostility to agencies is kind of the far more consistent theme of it. And this is something that is just such a direct pipeline from your Koch brothers, from your Leonard Leo, from your kind of big corporate interest Republicans that have figured out how to game the judicial system and how to make their priorities, e.g. not being regulated, become just like the biggest priority of the Republican judiciary, even beyond the kind of splashy headline grabbing, um, you know, culture war kind of social issue type stuff. More of this scintillating content after these messages. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Back to the show. Well, what we've seen with Roberts over the last, God, it's I guess it's approaching 20 years now that he's mm-hmm. been on the court, what? maybe 18 years, something like that, um, has been that when it comes to a gay rights case or an abortion case, you often find him, like, you know where he is, big picture, but he'll be like, oh, you know, we don't, do we really precedent? And not not that he maybe makes those points explicitly, but kind of like, isn't there a way we can kind of, you know, not, not go too overboard here, but pretty consistently on these kind of issues, he's like, you know, just just throw it right over the plate. I'm ready to knock it yep. out of the park, people. Like, let's let's do this. And it's funny because when you and I talked about this um, before we started recording, and on its face, it certainly sounds like at least a decent argument to say, "I, if you're accusing me of something, I want my day in a real court, not a not an SEC court." Um, and, you know, Republicans will say, uh, you know, SEC star chamber and all this kind of stuff. I'm sure it's, you know, they've got it's you can make your case and everything. And there are, there are real judges and all that kind of stuff. But we have federal courts for a reason. And we have the sort of the system of due process for a reason. So just on its face, you can't say that's like crazy or some totally wacko thing. We also noted, though, that this is not a conventional, what the SEC arbitrates are not, you know, I fixed your roof and the roof collapsed and you're suing me and we're going to go to court to decide who's at fault. These are technical issues having to do with you decided to play in the federal securities game. And so one analogy that we came up with, and this is, I think you suggested this is, I I assume this is one that others have mentioned too. When you become a lawyer, you can get disbarred and you don't go to court to get disbarred. You could, you know, there's a, it's a separate adjudication. And so there are arguments that 
this is not again you well who let let me ask you this you know who comes before these SEC court processes I assume there are people who are working in SEC regulated securities matters right. public companies yeah and like so the guy forth. the case is centered on today is this like big hedge fund manager type guy. It's yeah, it's it's public companies. Right. So I mean, you know, the man of the yeah, exactly. So 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 it, this isn't sort of uh, you know even the powerful deserve due process, but it's not a question of just power. It's a matter of you're operating in a very technical area. I mean, that in some ways is seems like you know one of the more compelling arguments, and I would think that at some level there's there would be some people in the business community that would want the consistency of going before an adjudication where the people know what you're talking about and not having the sort of the crapshoot of getting a judge that has no idea what, you, you know, doesn't really know that area of law or the technical issues uh, tied to uh, tied to those issues. Did you get a sense of when you're watching it? I mean, I, I suspect we know which way this is going. Was there anything surprising about where the different justices seem to be coming down? There was this? more concern than I thought there would be about the kind of knock-on effects. They're clearly hoping they can do this in a way that just sends all the SEC cases to court without disrupting everyone's internal adjudication, which I don't know if that'll be possible. But that's clearly there are a number of them that are interested in kind of splitting the baby uh, that way. Interesting. Which ones? Which ones? Which justices? Um, it's funny. Yeah, okay. kind of Kavanaugh, Barrett, the ones who are a little bit more on the social issue, like that's what they care about. Whereas like Gorsuch is at his right. most extreme in terms of regulation. You know, that's his hobby horse. That's Robert's right. hobby horse. But you you do get yep. the yep. the more kind of uh, Fox News fodder justices tend to get like a little quieter on right. regulation right. cases. Like they're not as steamed about it. Well, you do you, you do get the sense with the Kavanaugh's and Barrett's, they're kind of like, what? Like, where's the where's the fetus in this in this in this case? Or where's the where's the gay dude? Where's the cake? What are we talking Kavanaugh about? Kavanaugh has this, is- this like really funny tendency that you can tell he wants the lawyer to think that he knows what he's talking about. <laughs> so he just like, he can't not cut in. You know, today, like the DOJ lawyer was trying to say, I don't want you guys to think it's, well, he didn't say you guys. I don't want you to just think that it's the SEC. You know, uh, there's EPA, agriculture, right? Like this. And, and Kavanaugh's like, right, right, right. I know, I know. FTC, you know, just kind of like wanting to be like, I guys, I deserve to be here. <laughs> I know what I'm talking about. Yeah, he did. I, I, I didn't quite realize when he was, I knew the reasons he was bad news when he was nominated, but I didn't, I didn't realize the extent of how much he's still kind of fresh from the kegger, Mm -hmm. right? Like he's like, and everybody knows it. Even his allies know it. Like, you know, I'm, I'm sure if, if, you know, we've talked about the way that the, uh, you know the Republicans or the 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 Leonard Leo network. You know hooks up every every new justice with a sponsor family to go on vacations and stuff. And I feel like with Kavanaugh, they'd hook him up with like someone who also like one of the the husband or the wife could do some tutoring. Yeah. You know, just make sure he's up to speed on the on the on the on the latest jurisprudential issues. Yeah, I mean, at least he served on the D.C. Circuit. Like it is kind yeah. of nuts in retrospect that Barrett is on the court given that 
she, I mean, she was just a law professor at Notre Dame. Like, I'm not saying that's not a hard gig to get. I'm sure it is. But like, there's only nine spots available on this court. Yeah. Well, they want, I mean, you know, the the, the religious right wanted her for a she long was the time. Abortion as, pick. Yeah, yeah. She was the abortion pick. I So with, um, I would think too, uh, that there is for the, for the Republican justices who are not totally over top, over the top ideological about this issue, the way that Gorsuch is that you, if it is going to apply to all agency regulatory processes that you're going to have like a fucking tsunami overtake the federal courts because there are a million of these things and and often they're about things that are not trivial but you know pretty small things and I, I have to imagine that they're they have to take some cognizance of that. There's all I think there's already a a sort of on a bipartisan basis a recognition there aren't enough federal judges just to start with. And I don't mean yeah. people, I don't mean un, unfilled slots. There's just not enough judgeships to handle everything. So did that come up as just the practical effect of of what happens to all these cases when they have to come to federal court if they decided in that way? Yeah, there was a lot of back and forth with the government lawyer saying this is going to be huge. This is going to kind of flood the judiciary. And then um, this like hedge fund managers lawyer being like, no, 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 no. A small universe of cases, like not going to make a, a drop of difference. It kind of got to the point that Sotomayor was like, should we have extended briefing on what the consequences would be so we don't just kind of have to take everyone at their word here? So it came up in that context. And then Kagan brought it up in the context of you know, trace the kind of history of our securities legislation, right? Is that the SEC is born out of the Great Depression. And then you have two inflection points of securities legislation, which come after the savings and loan crisis in the 90s, and then after the Great Recession in 2007, 2008. So clearly, those inflection points emphasize the fact that we had the district court adjudication during that time, right? Like that remedy was available throughout all of these. And Congress clearly kind of felt that wasn't enough, right? That didn't like avert these huge crises that didn't create the kind of accountability for these financial entities that would have been, you know, that would have been scary enough to them that they wouldn't have acted this way, right? That they wouldn't have kind of done this like risky behavior. Um, So it also came up in that context, the idea that going back to just adjudicating this stuff in court would not be a new solution. Like that's what we had before. And it wasn't enough to ensure market stability and to assure to ensure that people were kind of playing by the rules and not, you know, misrepresenting the markets or any of that kind of stuff that creates these knock-on effects that create huge, you know, economic catastrophes. Right, right, right. And when is, um, so I guess the the real question is just whether this is, whether it's the SEC uh, adjudication that's going to get hit or whether they're going to make a kind of a big decision that really guts administrative processes across the federal government, basically. Exactly. Yep. It's all going to come down to like how tailored the decision is. Got it. Okay. So we'll end with a a Congress corner here, um, which has mostly been a, a bit quieter on the Western front um, since all the speakership stuff. You know, they're they're kind of dealing with um, the various aid packages now. The Senate is um, getting close to some kind of like border agreement, which of course still has the potential to really tank the whole thing. Um, but today is Wednesday. We're recording on Thursday. 
We're going to have the much ballyhooed Santos press conference on the steps. Um, And then it's looking like maybe Thursday, maybe Friday, we're going to have the expulsion vote. The only reason they would hold it until Friday is in the clear, dire hopes that Santos uh, just resigns himself tomorrow, which he has said repeatedly he's not going to do. Um, But that's... That's what we are, you know, we're nearing the end of the book, the end of the book on Representative George Santos, kind of no matter which way you slice it. So is is the assumption now that that the votes are there, unlike what it was a month ago or whenever that was, it's it that's the case? I, I don't even think it's going to be that close. Like you've got kind of Republican Congress people going on the record and saying like, you know, he's toast, he's done, he's got no shot. Right. Okay, so so it's really just a matter of they would really like him to take himself off their plate, right? And not. I, I was really stunned that 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 there's. I knew this was very rare, but he would be the sixth, only the sixth person in American history to be expelled from Congress, and he would be the first who was not either convicted of a crime or was part of the Confederacy. <laughs> wow. So, so it's quite a, a a a select group. And it kind of goes back almost a little bit to what we were saying with the SEC, this idea that, you know, if you want these big positions of power or a greater responsibility than your average Joe, you can be penalized in ways the average Joe can't be, right? And that for a while, that was the Santos argument. You had people saying, well, I, I want to wait for, if not a conviction, then I want to wait for the House Ethics Committee to wrap up. Some, yeah, something that's not just like a bunch of articles in the Times and the Post saying he sucks. Exactly. Yeah. And now we've reached the point where it's, you know, he's not going to go to jail without due process, but he can get booted out of Congress. I mean, you could argue he's kind of had due process, but without, you know, without the whole, the, the trial and whatnot. And we, it does seem that we've reached the point where it's just like, you know, it's not like this is a super popular guy who's been in Congress for forever and people owe him his political career. Like he's been here for two minutes and we kind of knew all this about him from essentially day one. So I think leadership is just desperately kind of at this point where your rank and file Republicans are not going to want to go around kind of risking it all for George Santos. Right. But then it's also like, you know, does it look good to expel one of your own members? No. Right. So it'd be just so much easier on everyone if he just kind of took himself out of the equation. Well, and it's also that that and this is what I was telling a few people the last time there was this vote, because I think I, I can't remember what context it was, but I told some group of people that I didn't think I would vote to expel him that la- the time that was like a month ago. And I was like, right. what are you talking about? Why? You don't think he's... And some progressives been- didn't at the time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And, because the thing is, is that expelling a member is a really big deal. A, leg- a legislative body should not be in the business. And it's, it is only a... It's only a sort of structural necessity that they have to have the right to expel a member. But think about it. The people send members to the body. The body doesn't send them back to the people. I mean, that, that, it so it's a big, big deal. Um, and, but as, as you can see from that history, it's heavily self-selecting. Because it takes a certain kind of person to say, okay, my career is 100% over. We all agree on that. And 
but I want to go for the extra just shame and humiliation of of everybody getting up, including most of my own people and saying, you suck, get the fuck out of here. <laughs> and so there's a certain, again, there's a certain personality type that says, oh yeah, shame me, make me the sixth. <laughs> it tends to be a self-selecting problem because it's so easy to say, I've been meaning to spend more time with my family. I'm going to, and also my lawyers in my major federal racketeering case. So I'm going to, I'm going to step aside and let a new generation of leadership take my position. But, you know, George Santos, since we met him about exactly a year ago, he's a different, he's not cut from weak cloth like that. It's so funny. One of our editors, Nicola Fond, and I were talking about this the other day that in a normal world, George Santos would be like a super moderate, right? Like he's from a quite a blue district. He flipped it pretty surprisingly. You know, if he was a normal politician, he would be part of this knot of New York Congress people who know they're in frontline districts and have to kind of toe the line. And now we're in this bizarro world where the New York contingent are kind of his biggest enemies because I think they see it as a fairly easy win that shows they're not in like lockstep with the party, right? Like they're independent. Um, And you've got him. Every time I see him, he's kind of at the side of Lauren Boebert because like the safe harbor in the storm for him is kind of the widely hated, like crazy right wing fringe members of whom Boebert is, is an exception in that she comes from a competitive district. But like everyone else who takes on that persona is, you know, a Republican plus a million. Like they don't have to worry about their seats. They can be Marjorie Taylor Greene it up and know that they're safe for the forever as long as they want the seat. So it's just it's so it's just so funny how these things have turned out and how in a normal timeline, George Santos would have been someone we were probably talking about a fair bit but for totally different reasons for like, where's he going to come down on the speaker, right? Is, is, is Jim Jordan too extreme for his district? It's just uh, how, how things have shaken out. No one, no one could have expected. Well, it, it, it is, even I, for a moment there, had to think for a second, wait, why did he get become so pals with Matt, like Matt Gates? Like, how did right. that happen? Exactly. And, and I think we know that, that if, that given how, what a freak he was quickly revealed to be, that any serious people would say, you're in a kind of a bluish district and like, dude, I don't want to touch you. You're, radi- you're radioactive. You're gone in a year and a half. So like, you're on your own. I'm, I'm in the trying to stay in Congress business. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and so the only the the rump freedom caucus those folks will take you know if you if you talk the you know kind of talk the party line you can you can you know have uh your own troop of pet monkeys you you walk around you know you walk around the halls of congress with and you're good to go Exactly. As long as you, as long as you're talking about the deep state and uh, yeah. and Kevin McCarthy and whatever, so it is it is interesting to think about what would he have done if he if this if this stuff hadn't all come out, he would have just been this different person. Although what I was gonna what I was gonna um, think was is that he probably didn't think he was gonna go to Congress at all. <laughs> so the whole thing was a surprise to him. So he hadn't even got to that. Right. right? Got to thinking about what what was uh, what was gonna happen there. Yeah. So, yeah. so the the last uh, Congress related thing we wanted to talk about before we wrapped up is uh, we officially have gotten word that Hunter Biden will 
go chat with the House Oversight Committee on December 13th. But hilariously, so funny, they the Republicans of the committee are insisting that this be at a closed door deposition, even while Hunter's lawyer was like, we'd really prefer it to be public testimony. We don't we don't trust you guys to accurately convey what goes on to the American public. And if this was any kind of a real investigation, I mean, getting a prime witness on the record in front of cameras, it doesn't All get better than that. All the bad guys want to be in private. All the bad yeah. guys want to be in private. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, but of course, because they know that they've got nothing and that in their first kind of ill-fated attempt to to kind of light this impeachment stuff on fire... They had all these witnesses sitting there being like, no, it's not a crime against Joe Biden or, you know, Joe Biden wasn't involved. They had just time after time had their own witnesses, the witnesses they'd called shoot holes in their case, which was so embarrassing and such a failure that they kind of dropped the impeachment thing for a while. I mean, that was a long time ago at this point. (laughs) It kind of seemed like they were going to be done for good. Yeah, yeah. No, and, and as you say, I mean, I'm sure at one level, and it, is Abby Lowell his lawyer now? That's again, right. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure at one level they don't trust them, and they don't want you know how it's going to be conveyed and stuff. But you can see also they would only be doing this if they thought that it would be a win for him to have it be out in public. And and if you think about it, it's we haven't heard much from Hunter Biden. Mm-mm. We've heard about him. We've seen that he was you know some just decided to become an artist for a while and all sorts of stuff. But we haven't heard, you know, Jim Jordan say, is it not true that you made a secret deal with, uh, you know, uh, uh, President Xi of China and you cut your dad in for $50 million? And, you know, Hunter Biden isn't an idiot. He's a pretty, you know, he's worked as a lawyer, he's worked in Washington. He's not a dumb guy. Um, And he also to the regret of some Democrats, he's not a shrinking violet either. His attitude, a lot of this is like, bring it. You know, you want to you wanna take me on? Let's do it. So they clearly don't think that would, he and the Republican committee members, they both seem to think that he would get the better of them. How could they resist? He's the, he, you know, the great white whale says, yes, I will... Me, the whale, I'm going to come and sit on your committee in front of all the cameras and you can you can make me sit there for 11 hours like Hillary did in 2015 or whenever that was. They should be like, oh, my God, this is this is the ultimate. It'll be our version of the Jan 6 committee hearings. It'll be the best thing ever. But they don't want to do it, which speaks volumes. It's a really good point because I was kind of thinking about this why would you have him go, right? I mean, it's just in terms of something you think is stupid, in terms of something you think is political, it's not a real fact-finding mission. Um, You know, and to some degree, it's the president's son who has been kind of through the ringer already. And it's not like the Trump administration had a habit of making people available for congressional investigators. So there's a pretty Mm -hmm. rich precedent if they just kind of want to be like, okay, well, shove it, right? You know, come back with- We'll see you in nine years when our case is- Exactly. Whenever, yeah, yeah, yeah. like Steve Bannon is still in in court for that. Um, So I think you've got to be right. I mean, to some degree, it's got to be 
they think that he would perform well. I mean, I kind of wonder, I wonder if they're going to stick to it if House Republicans are like, no, it's going to be behind closed doors. It's hard to me, hard for me to see what the upside is of doing any kind of performance with House Republicans when House Republicans are the ones who get to spin what happened. Um, you know, and then it's just kind of their word versus Hunter's. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, the the Democrats will be there. So they'll be yeah. able to say whatever. And there will be a transcript. So That's if, true. Any, if, That's if true. anything if anything really specific is disputed. But as we know, it's the vibes mm-hmm. that that are that and and you know, uh re- Republicans control the the vibe description on Fox News. So there is a lot that oh, he knew he was guilty and he was he was changing the subject and blah 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 blah. It I was will, a bombshell. I, <laughs> I do think at at a, at a minimum that if they insist on doing it behind closed doors, that I'm sure Abby Lowell will have Hunter Biden there outside the committee room. I'm here to speak. I would like the American people to hear what I have to say. What is this Comer dork's problem? Wanting to do it behind closed doors. What a what a sad spectacle for the American Congress. So I'm sure they're going to play it up like right. that. And, you know, we will see. Right. And then I guess, like you say, you'll have Raskin to home the Democratic defense who's like particularly good at this kind of stuff. Yeah. I mean, it's this is one of the things about... Um, that committee is that you've got a, I believe Raskin was a law professor before he yeah, I think went, that's right. went to Congress. So he's a pretty sharp guy. And this is a, a committee where you've got a pretty sharp guy up against a guy who's been a pretty big embarrassment, even <laughs> as Republican, you know, Republican committee, investigative committee chairs go. And that's yeah. saying a lot, right? I mean, you're talking like Devin Nunes, Jim Jordan. I mean, mm-hmm. but but those guys at least have not consistently had these cases where kind of like, this is the big one and then nothing happens or you've got him on Twitter on a Saturday night tweeting a check you know, here's the bombshell. And someone's like, uh, yeah, that was a, a, a home loan. Did you and not notice that? even if you and- think it's a bombshell, it's so confusing. Like, you know, to follow their logic is just like, you know, it's it's the, the meme with the thread on the board. Like, you have to be so into the Biden crime syndicate universe to kind of understand what they are considering as the huge bombshells, which, of course, in and of themselves are always, you know, unsubstantiated and, and all the rest. Well, and I think that the, what really says it is, is that, um, you know, as Republican investigative chairman go... He's been a huge embar- embarrassment, and that is saying a lot. Stiff right? competition and for stiff that. Stiff competition, <laughs> and and again, I wouldn't even say even on the record, it's not like Republicans dispute that. Yeah, there have been tons of times where even the sort of the total down the line, you know, Fox Knicks are kind of saying, "Dude, get it together!" Like, what you're embarrassing us? Like, I thought we were gonna at least get Hunter Biden, if not, you know, if not, if not Joe. So, yeah. Well, another another uh, episode of great content in the can there. And uh, oh, one thing I wanted to mention, we have a big sale going on at TPM. We are doing a, a mega sale uh, right now. You can get 30% off an annual membership. And in addition to that uh, discount, 
a really good reason to subscribe now is that we do campaign coverage in a different way here at TPM. You know, there's the there's the there's the shiny object driven approach a lot of the mainstream media has. There's the both sides approach. We do something different. This is obviously a big, very consequential campaign coming up. We do campaign coverage in a special way. If you are not a subscriber, become a subscriber now, and that annual membership will take you all the way through the 2024 election. And again, 30% off, so a very steep discount. Uh, right now, if you're not a member, you can just go to the site. You'll see some uh, you know, pop-ups that, that you know, kind of offer that deal to you. So if you're not a member, give it, give it a thought. Uh, it, it's uh, pretty inexpensive. And, it, and in addition to giving you all that, it supports what we do. It's what, it's what funds uh, allowing Kate and I to do this podcast every week. So good idea. Uh, check it out. Head to the site, talkingpointsmemo.com. And I think all that's right. all we got for this week. All right. See you Talk next to you week. later. The Josh Marshall Podcast is hosted by me, TPM reporter Kate Riga, and TPM founder, editor-in-chief Josh Marshall. The show is produced by Jackie Wilhelm. Thanks to Why Not Jansfeld for our podcast theme song. And thanks to all our TPM members who make this possible. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and subscribe wherever you listen.